electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Elon Musk once again in hot water over his tweets, and his own company is back in damage control to reassure advertisers. But Musk has insisted he doesn't care what others think. VC Sam Lesson says there's only one thing that would change that. He tells us what that is ahead. Plus, has the Fed won the inflation fight but lost the recession battle? Our guest says yes. Well, one does, but the other one says no. We'll have that debate momentarily. And China's cheap retail apps. They're playing by different rules, and they're gaining market share from U.S. brands. We'll look at the names most at risk and the ones actually benefiting from them. But first, let's get today's markets with Dom Chu. A bit of a mixed bag, Dom. It is a mixed bag, but the gains that we're seeing is modest overall for the S&P. But believe it or not, if we stay green for the S&P, it would be four straight days worth of gains. So the bulls are probably holding on to that right now. But the Dow Industrial is currently down 25 points, just about flat on the session. Just currently down 34,921. The S&P 500, 45.11, up three points. And again, for perspective, we were up roughly five points at the highs, down nine points at the lows. That gives you an idea of the trading range so far today. The Nasdaq Composite up seven points. Again, flat on the session so far. But it's been an eventful week, especially when it comes to interest rates. If you take a look at the 10-year benchmark note yield, currently, again, just a little above 4.44%. We've seen a massive pullback that we've seen in rates since those kind of mid to third week of October highs. Remember, 5.02 was the cycle high so far. To put it in other terms, dollar terms, for those who use ETFs to take bond exposure, the price of the iShares 20-plus year long-term treasury bond ETF, the TLT, is currently at $90.09, up a half a percent today. From the October 23rd lows up until here, you're talking about this ETF gaining 10% in value just since October 23rd. So again, dollar amounts instead of rates, if you tend to look at it that way. And if you're looking for the stocks that have done the heavy lifting so far in this rally, it wasn't that long ago that we talked about the Magnificent Seven really selling off from some of the highs. Well, they've come back in full force on a month-to-date basis. NVIDIA, Apple, Microsoft, among the biggest gainers just so far this month alone. So Kelly, if you're looking for that kind of muscle memory, Investors, when they see a discount on any of these mega cap tech names, they seem to still step back in there. I don't know what to make of it or how long it lasts, but there are seasonal trends. Technology still reigns supreme. As Bank of America points out, the most crowded trade going into next year is still this one. Dom, thank you very much, our Dom Chu. Let's talk about the economy now. Our hopes for a year-end rally set to be dashed by bad data. One of my next guests warns the rise in jobless claims this week means a recession is coming. The other says not so fast. Let's bring in Greg Dotko, chief economist at EY Parthenon, and Chris Repke, chief economist at Forward Bonds. Our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, joins us as well. Chris, I'll start with you. And how serious is the recent backup in both initial and continuing jobless claims? Well, for all these uh, leading indicators, so-called of turning points in the economy that people have researched for decade after decade, There's always some uncertainty out there, of course. Uh, 
it can't really be predicted. But the most immediate, timeliest indicators are the weekly jobless claims data. And right now, it, it looks like it's picking up a little in a worrisome manner. So once continuing claims is the most, most leading indicator, well, it's actually initial, then continuing, then the unemployment rate. It looks like, you know, as I uh, like to say, it's kind of get ready, get set, go. Right now, we're getting ready, getting set. Um, you know, it's, it's looking like it could be a possible recession. Right. You say, as, you, as you titled your note, Americans will be having recession this Thanksgiving, although uh, we hope maybe it hasn't started already. There's still some time. Greg, you're not so sure that the dreaded event is coming. Why? Well, I think it's clear that we're seeing a slowdown in economic activity. And I think Chris is absolutely right to point out the labor market. The labor market has been really the key pillar in terms of, of economic activity. We are seeing a softening in terms of employment growth, uh, but that softening is not as pronounced as we would start to worry about. The key question going into 2024 is how pronounced that slowdown will be. If it's a controlled slowdown where the value of talent remains elevated and business leaders continue to preserve talent to navigate this uncertainty, then we won't see a recession. If instead morale seems to shift and we start to see more pronounced layoffs, then that's going to impact income and that will directly affect consumer spending, which has been uh, quite resilient up until now. I, Steve, I keep thinking about uh, what our discussion with Claudia Sam and her line towards, uh, maybe towards the end of that interview where she said that the reason why she based her little recession metric off the unemployment rate is that once it starts to rise, it usually keeps going. So right now, this half point rise doesn't feel to anyone like the end of the world, except for the fact that it usually keeps going and that, you know, we seem to be uh, the most likely case now. Yeah, Kelly, that's the question with an awful lot of data. One thing I've been watching closely, the delinquency data, a lot of which has gotten back to the uh, risen to the pre pandemic highs and you don't know where it stops. Look, I came on this show mostly to listen Kelly, I was hoping that between the, uh, Chris and Greg, I was going to know which way to lean. I, most of this past year, I haven't been in the recession camp, um, and it's been the right call. But what's gotten me more nervous, actually, is the rise in interest rates and knowing that consumers are really feeling this and businesses are going to feel it. I think one thing that was not mentioned as being very critical to the outcome is the extent to which rates remain high and companies have to refinance their low pandemic era debt into those higher rates. If the Fed can ease back just in time before some, we hit some of those refinancing cliffs, I think we might avoid it. But if a lot of companies have to refinance and, and consumers as well into those higher rates, then I think we risk a potential recession. Chris, that was the argument we were getting into with Bill Lee a little bit yesterday because he wants the Fed to really wait until they're sure inflation is coming down before they pivot. Whereas I was kind of arguing, and Steve is making the point here as well, that if you want to save a harder landing, you kind of have to act quickly. And before you really see the weakness in the economy showing up, what do you think the Fed, if anything, could do right now, Chris, to keep us from going into recession? Well, they can't do a whole lot. I, I think a lot of times... Uh, Fed officials over the years have felt the need to slash interest rates very quickly, get them down very fast. I think over time we've learned uh, that that's kind of a mistake. Usually when we go into a recession, companies aren't looking to borrow. They don't, co they don't care how fast the Fed is going to lower interest <clears throat> rates. 
Um, I, I think it's a mistake. I think they should cut rates if they're going to uh, just just very gradually. And at the moment, of course, they still have one more rate hike up on the board for this year. I have to admit, I was kind of shocked that all the all of a sudden we get a 0.2% core CPI reading after two months of 0.3%. And all of a sudden, people think the Fed's done. And in Europe, they're looking for 100 basis points of rate cuts in Europe. I mean, I don't know how this got going all this all this but, week. But isn't it exactly the day? It's not. I Listen, to be honest, I don't think anyone's responding to the CPI as if that one month changed things. It just opens the door. It's all the people concerned that the business cycle is turning and we're, we could go into a hard landing. See the CPI as a way of saying, OK, it's now giving the central banks room to do what we think the economy is going to force them to do, don't you think? Um, I, yeah, I but do, I, I but, still think. Oh, sorry, Chris, go ahead. Uh, yeah, still, I, I think they're going to be fairly cautious here. I think they made a mistake by, you know, waiting too long to raise interest rates. They had a target of trying to return the unemployment rate all the way back down. Uh, for inflation here, I think they really need to be cautious as well. Um, it's going to be very difficult for them to get inflation down to exactly 2.0. Right. You know, maybe it's right. 3.0, but. Uh, I think they should be cautious here in cutting rates. Greg? I actually think uh, the outlook for inflation is actually quite optimistic. I think we're running faster than what the Fed was expecting in terms of disinflation, and we will likely continue to do so. I wouldn't be surprised that the Fed's preferred gauge, the PC index or the core PC, are close to two and a half or a little bit lower in the first quarter of next year as we continue to see this downward pressure from easing demand for goods and services, as we continue to see this pressure on profit margins, as we saw in the PPI data, easing wage growth. Those are all very strong fundamentals in terms of inflationary dynamics. I think the Fed will start to talk about a pivot early next year. It won't implement that pivot until the second quarter of next year, but it is going to consider easing monetary policy. We'll talk about policy recalibration, really, to essentially provide a little bit more stimulus to economic activity. So that's where the positive growth story can come from. I find it interesting and and very emblematic, Greg, that you're more bullish on the economy, but dovish on inflation. And Chris is more bearish on the economy, but hawkish on inflation. So Steve, give us a quick last word here. You know, I kind of agree with both sides in this. I I think Chris is right that the market went overboard in terms of its extrapolation from this one-month number. The data just doesn't behave in a linear fashion the way the market is going to want it to. There's going to be ups and downs along the way. It's going to be, there are going to be challenges to this notion of the Fed being done. I've had a chance to talk to two Fed officials over the last two days, and neither is willing to give it up just yet uh, because they need to see more data. At the same time, I think Greg is probably right that come the January or February, the Fed's going to have to have a talking with the market and say, okay, if we're done here and the data has been well behaved, here's the next phase. And that next phase is going to include some cuts. And there could be two reasons for those cuts, Kelly, as you and I have discussed. One is because if the Fed does not cut and inflation comes down, it will become relatively tighter. But a second reason will be the Fed doesn't have to remain quite as tight as it's been in order to tamp down inflation. Yeah, and I'll still I'll leave it with uh, what, what Bank of America's 
uh, Michael Hartnett said, which is that the move from five to four on rates feels pretty bullish, but from four to three percent would probably be more of a dovish outcome. Uh, for now, we're at 444, yeah. so we've got some time to discuss. Greg Daco, Chris Rupke, Steve Leisman, thank you all very much today. We appreciate it. Speaking of yields, the 10-year has been dropping quickly, falling below 4.4% earlier today, compared with over 5% just a month ago. As for where rates go next, Bridgewater's Ray Dalio addressed the tug-of-war between Treasury supply and demand on Squawk Box earlier today. I think the rate structure is going to um, be staying at its level, perhaps uh, slightly less, but there's a range of uncertainty around that having to do with the supply-demand question. We're now at a period of time where the supply of bonds to be sold will be hit, start hitting the market. Well, my next guest says the November rally in stocks has simply been the flip side of those falling rates. So can stocks keep moving higher from here? Joining me now is David Bonson, CIO of the Bonson Group. David, it's good to see you again. What's your overall sense of things, both responding to that bull bear debate we just had and this tug of war between stocks and rates? Well, I'm, I was listening carefully to that bull bear debate, particularly on inflation, Kelly. I, I simply believe that the inflation rate has a two-handle now. And I do not understand why more people are not talking about the difference between the CPI read on shelter versus every market read on shelter that we have. About 10 different surveys that show rent growth is really around 0%. And CPI saying it's 7%. But that's 34% of CPI, so we can all do the math. It's adding about 1.8% to the headline inflation number, which means you're around below a two-handle headline and about two and a half on the core rate. Now look, maybe the rent growth is 3%, not zero. The numbers are still right around Fed target and certainly going to be there in Q1 of next year. So you're, I'm gonna put it a couple of different ways, you're dovish? Maybe you're bearish? How does this all shake out for you in terms of investments? Yeah, so it's a great question because I don't believe the inflation debate lends itself to an easy either uh, bullish or bearish. I mean, as far as dovishness with Fed policy, I hate dovishness because I don't like over accommodation. Zero interest rate policy is something I hope we never see again. It's highly distortive and it inevitably leads to a boom that follows with a bust. What I do believe is that we have weak economic growth, and we've had it for 15 years, and that I don't think there's any real significant pro-growth boom coming on, which requires investors to be more diligent, not begging for P.E. ratios to go higher, begging for some 50 times earnings company to go to 80 times earnings, but rather good organic cash flow growth. And that's why I think boring dividend growth investors like us are doing so well in this environment. It's a very good period for fundamentals. A lot of the stocks you like have yields of four to five percent. We're talking about uh, Leandel, Basil, apologies for the uh, pronunciation there, Kenview even. Uh, IBM is in here. And Blue Owl Capital, quick one on Blue Owl. You think this is a private credit uh, play? Are you bullish on private credit? Because it seems like there could be a lot of pent-up problems there. Yeah, we're very bullish on private credit as a secular story, meaning the amount of fees that can be generated by having risk takers lend as opposed to regional banks. This is a secular trend that started post-crisis. It's not going anywhere. Uh, There will be more defaults in the future than there's been in a very low default environment. But even with some modest range of defaults, as asset managers, Blue Owl, you know, Blackstone and Apollo are in that space too. And those are names we also own. But Blue Owl is very 
very dedicated in this space around private credit, raising good money, around real estate lending. And to me, it shows a secular trend, Kelly, that the banks aren't doing it, and now asset managers are. And I love that idea. Don't use depositor capital. Use risk-taker capital. It's a good model, even if every now and then there's, lo and behold, losses. Yeah, I, I suppose I like it in concept as well, but I, I haven't yet seen what the other side looks like. So I'm a little, a little nervous to see how exactly that all shakes out. But just to kind of circle back to your original point, David, do you expect bond? So if you think the November rally for stocks is really the flip side of falling bond yields, should we expect it to keep going or not here with the 10-year now down at around 445? Well, here, here's what I would say. Um, I don't have an opinion about what the stock market would do in the next month. But if you believe that stocks are going to continue going higher, you either have to believe that bond yields are going to keep going lower or you have to believe stocks will go higher for a different reason. But I don't think it's controversial that that's the reason stocks have moved higher here in the last several weeks. And by the way, the, why they went lower in October. So they've been very, very correlated with the bond market. I don't see that correlation breaking up anytime soon. Um, but I think that perhaps the market is going to be responding more to the short end of the curve instead of the long end as mm. we go into 24. But the problem is that now you're starting to get the opposite issue where, OK, bond yields are going lower. Everyone likes that. But maybe it's because the economic weakness narrative is coming back. Exactly. So the, it's a very complicated period. Until we're on the other side of this Fed cycle, I don't think it's going to be easy. All right. And that's where you stick with some of those dividend payers we talked about. David, for now, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. David Bonson. Coming up, the strength of the consumer will decide the fate of retail stocks this holiday season. We'll look at three names to buy and one to avoid as the retail XRT ETF tries to snap a three-month losing streak. But first, Elon Musk facing backlash for boosting an anti-Semitic tweet, and now his companies could be suffering the fallout. We'll look at the danger for the social media giant and its advertising ambitions. That's next on The Exchange. Summer. The best time of year usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. IBM announcing it has pulled advertising from X or Twitter after one of its ads ran next to content praising Adolf Hitler and Nazis. The move comes a day after X owner and Tesla CEO Elon Musk amplified a tweet about an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And this isn't the first time Musk has found himself in hot water over anti-Semitic content. But he told our David Faber back in May, I'll say what I want to say, and if we lose money, so be it. X, for its part, says it has taken steps to improve its brand safety and suitability controls on the platform. Its head of business operations telling The Wall Street Journal that X is, quote, not intentionally placing a brand actively next to this type of content, nor is a brand actively trying to support this content with placement. 
Nonetheless, ad revenue has declined every month since Musk bought Twitter back in October of last year. According to ad analytics firm Guideline, revenues have fallen at least 55 percent year over year the past 13 months, with the steepest drop being a 78 percent decline last December. Joining me now to discuss what's next for Musk, Twitter and the rest of his empire is Slow Ventures Sam Lesson and Brian Stelter, author of the new book Network of Lies and a Vanity Fair special correspondent. It's good to have you guys both here. Sam, what's the thought in the Valley about all this? I mean, isn't it kind of business as usual? Like, I, you know, I think it's, it's really disappointing um, to see these, these words from Musk. Musk has a history of saying some pretty outlandish and pretty awful things. You know, I think the reality is, is that he owns Twitter outright. And, you know, the only thing that changes how Musk behaves is the price of Tesla stock. So, you know, if people don't like it, they should sell Tesla stock. It's nice that IBM pulls, other people might pull, but he can afford to float this forever. So, and I I saw, Sam, your thoughts that, you know, there's only a couple of ways to exert pressure here, and that is sell your your Tesla. There's that's really only publicly traded one. If you're an employee, you say then quit, you know, even if you're part of the broader Musk empire. I mean, is the idea that everyone is feeling frustrated with his behavior and just can't seem to find a way to get him to stop it, even as it seems to be self-sabotage? Yeah, I mean, I just, the way I think about it is like, you know, I actually am a huge freedom of speech believer. And I think a lot of the principles that Musk, you know, kind of bought Twitter on being like, this should be an open free forum. People should say what they believe. I, I'm with him on all of that. I and mean, part of what's frustrating about Musk is he's not totally wrong about everything. But I think part of the, you know, the un, unintended calculus there is you empower a voice who says some pretty terrible things all the time uh, with, with very little sense of consequence. You know, it's good that he's so rich and powerful that he can't be swayed. It's bad that he's so rich and powerful that really nothing is going to affect how he then chooses to speak himself other than one, doing what public market people can do, which is don't own Tesla, right? Like, you know, that's the only thing he cares about that matters financially. Or two, you know, if you are an employee, you know, that used to be that you know, Musk is not known as a great employer, but he had the coolest companies to work on. If you want to be in space, you work at SpaceX. If you want to work on electric cars, you work at Tesla no matter what, because it's such a that's where the mission was. But the world is changing. You know, those engineers have other options now they didn't have before and they should take them. Brian, let's bring you in here because I'm curious what you think are the ramifications both for Musk himself and the empire that he controls. It's death by a thousand cuts, at least reputational death by a thousand cuts. Uh, If you weren't horrified by the last thing, you're going to be horrified by the next thing. That's the reality for Musk now in the court of public opinion. But he seems to only care what his far right friends on X think. He doesn't seem to care about that wider audience. I think your banner a moment ago asked an interesting question. It says it right now. Can this platform ensure brand safety? And the answer is clearly no, absolutely not. And I think that has to be internalized still by some of these companies. Yes, IBM's pulled. My reporting indicates some other companies are reevaluating those advertising decisions. But you know what? A lot of people, a lot of companies are still posting. They're still providing free raw content for Elon Musk. And it was interesting today when the European Commission came out and said, we're advising folks not to be advertising right now. We're, we're pushing in a different direction. What was X's response? Hey, looks like your accounts are still posting on X. Hmm. So I think that is the point of tension here, among others. How important a platform is Twitter or ask, uh, X still, Brian? I mean, it's for all of the disruptors and uh, for threads and all the rest. I, I see plenty of people even again this week saying, I'm leaving Twitter. I'm going to threads. Um, are they really losing market share, though? Do they still have the significance, uh, does Twitter, that it did when he bought it a year ago? 
Listen, I'm on a book tour. I'm posting on threads every hour and on Twitter every hour. Sorry, X every hour. I think the reality now is you're having to do more on more platforms, but X is still central to the conversation for media, for tech. That's why Sam posted his great post about this on X, right? You know, uh, it, is, it is still it is still that hub, right? It has 15 years of relationships and networking baked into it. And I think uh, ultimately maybe Musk knows that and is betting that he can really actually get away with everything except murder. Sam, what are your thoughts on the long-term uh, important? Again, as I know, you were very bullish on Threads when it first started, and it, it has, it's still out there. People are still engaging on it. You know, I see updates, as, as Brian said, he's kind of on both of them these days. Um, but has the lack of advertising changed the significance of, of, of Twitter as a, as a platform? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, like, look, first on the Threads thing, Threads will succeed. It will take a while. This is what Facebook does. They will grind it out, and it will be a successful, enormous platform, and we will post to it, you know, if you're kind of trying to get attention. Twitter's not going to die, though, and I think that's kind of the thing that people don't get. It's like, you know, the reality is, is, is Twitter has always been an incredible product and a terrible business, and I think with Musk owning it, it will continue to be an incredibly sticky product, one that is actually harder to kill than people even realized, and a terrible business. And so, you know, I think that's fine for someone of his wealth to just support forever. You know, the, the people who, you know, were silly enough to buy the debt are going to watch the value go down and down and down and down and down. And eventually, maybe if he makes it crazy enough, the debt will be super cheap and he can just buy it back. And it's his personal global thing. I think Twitter is good and I think it's an important platform. Um, it's just a terrible business. <laughs> yeah, as you say, hard to kill. Uh, that's been true over the past year, despite his best efforts sometimes. Gentlemen, thank you both. Sam Lesson and Brian Stelter, we appreciate it. Coming up, we're less than 36 hours away from the Las Vegas Grand Prix. We'll get a live report from the Strip ahead of this weekend's big race as Vegas tries to make the transition from Sin City to Sports City. That's all ahead. As we go to break, here's a glance at markets with the Dow trying to turn positive again. It's down 10 points. The S&P's up 6, the Nasdaq's up 18. The 10-year yield is 443. We're back in a moment. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Israel's war cabinet agreed to allow around 370,000 gallons of fuel into Gaza every two days. U.S. and Israeli officials announced the policy today as the region faces shortages that are threatening uh, aid deliveries and communication and the delivery of medical services. U.S. officials said the fuel will go to U.N. aid trucks and needs like desalinization of water, sewage pumping and hospitals. Some of the fuel will also power generators for telecommunications companies. The U.S. and the Philippines signed a landmark deal today, allowing Washington to export nuclear materials and technology to Manila. Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. said nuclear energy could become part of the country's energy profile by 2032. Congressional approval still needed for that deal to go through. Meanwhile, a 6.7 magnitude earthquake rocked the southern tip of the country. Social media videos show pools sloshing and ceilings falling in malls, prompting temporary closures. There, at least one person reportedly killed. Authorities say dozens were injured. 
on the tip of the Philippines. Kelly, back to you. See you in a little bit. All right, Tyler, thanks. Coming up, we're wrapping up a big retail earnings week with a special edition of Three Buys into Bail. And speaking of retail, check out shares of Gap, which are soaring up 30% and on pace for their best day ever. Now, again, we're talking about a $17 stock, but still, sales at Old Navy offset some weakness at Banana Republic and even Athleta. Interesting change there. The company reaffirming full-year guidance still expects holiday quarter sales to be flat to slightly negative. That's how sentiment is in this market that they are that relieved with Gap's forecast. We'll take a closer look at four more retailers after the break. Welcome back. A slew of retail earnings this week, and they've given investors an inside look at just how stretched the consumer is feeling. So which are the retail names you can safely buy now, like Gap, I suppose, and which should you be sure to avoid? Let's find out in today's Three Buys and a Bail Retail Edition. Here with our trades is Victoria Green. She's Chief Investment Officer at G-Squared Private Wealth and a CNBC contributor. Victoria, it's great to have you. Your first buy is Walmart, um, which was consensus until, you know, yesterday. Uh, The shares are pretty flat today after that 8% (laughs) drop on their cautious consumer outlook. They did beat on the top and bottom lines, strong grocery and e-commerce driving that. So you say stick with it? Absolutely. They were the only retailer really punished for for saying what everybody else said, which was, hey, we're worried our consumers slowing down. And everybody else, even Target, seemed to be saying, hey, we can lower sales, slow, have less traffic, have slower sales. And they got rewarded up 20 percent. Walmart grew their sales, grew traffic, and they were punished 8 percent. It just doesn't make sense to me. Quality company. They lean into grocery. They saw e-commerce uh, expand. That added about 300 bips to their bottom line. And I think if you are seeing the value content as consumer, Walmart's the place you want to be. All right. You want to be in Walmart. You also like Ross stores. They just reported the off-price retailer, and they did top street estimates on both the top and bottom lines yesterday. They had robust demand at discount outlets. Uh, They had easing freight costs heading into the holiday shopping season. And the shares are up 8% right now. Yeah, we're also definitely one that I would hold or buy because, uh, again, it's about the value they're providing their customers and their ability to grow their top line. They expanded margins. They grew EPS. They still have a very conservative guidance and outlook. And it actually seemed, if you read through management commentary, they're saying, hey, we're going to keep that guidance 1% to 2% sales growth for Q4. But if they do what they did in Q3, that could be up 5%. And their EPS growth, regardless, they range it from 1.52 to 1.61. That's still about 20, 30 cents growth over what they they saw on Q3. I like a company that's growing. And again, it's value oriented. They saw a little bit lower ticket uh, prices, but people were putting more items in the basket. So we're seeing their consumer look to them for value. And so if you're squeezed again and you're looking for clothing, you might be looking more to Ross than you would to say Target or TJ Maxx. All right. Your third buy is everyone's favorite. So, you know, I, I got to find some <laughs> holes to poke in this story, even as I have another order on its way uh, to my house right now. Costco, <laughs> uh, they don't report Q1 until mid-December, but they did hit a new 52 week high earlier this week, even as Walmart was down uh, at Amazon, too. And their competitor, BJ's, reported this morning it was a beat on both the top and bottom line. Thanks to membership, traffic and market share growth in Q3, it has to come from somewhere. Um, what do you what do you think about Costco? Definite buy? Excited buy? Excited by. Okay. I do have to like full disclaimer. I am also a Costco lover and a Costco member, but they just have a cult following and they have 130 members and they're cracking down on those members. I don't know if you've been there recently or not, but they're actually checking the picture on the card Mm -hmm. that could drive further and further membership gains, which is a a solid out to their bottom line, about $4.2 billion a year in membership revenues. And their store traffic has continued to grow. I think again, on the value theme, if you're seeing shoppers uh, load up for the holidays, buying food, buying wine, 
line. They've got great grocery selections. They're going to see more and more traffic go there. And that would be potentially pulling from, say, a Target or a Kroger as you're looking for those value deals at Costco, those bulk deals to feed your family over the holidays. Yes, October sales were a little bit slower. I think their same source sales and traffic was about up only about 2% versus the 4 to 5% they've been doing earlier this year. But I think they can still have same store sales growth and justify their premium multiple. Absolutely. I always thought it would be a cool thing to do as a household, Victoria. We, we can't buy single stocks. We've sold other one. You could buy everything that you pay for in real life and just recycle the cash flows back to yourself, right? So you'd Maybe you'd buy Costco, maybe you'd buy, I don't know, Exxon, maybe you'd buy, you know, and, and just then it goes in, it goes out of one hand and then it comes back in the other. <laughs> That's a good way to justify our spending. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. All right. Let's, uh, those all three were your buys. You do have a name that you'd bail on though. And it's actually Home Depot. The shares are up 5% after they reported strong Q3 results this week. But much like Walmart and Target, they did have that weak outlook. A lot of people have been wanting to stick with this for the long run though, but not you. Why? No, and no participation trophy. Their earnings were not that great in Q3 at all. They saw a drop in EPS, a drop in sales. They're seeing pro slow down. Their pro backlog is, is lower and slower than it used to be. They're seeing less of big ticket items, even flooring and cabinets. They're not selling as much. They're warning. People got excited because we said, hey, EPS is only going to fall potentially 3 to 4% versus the range of 2, 2 to 5%. I am not buying the fact on this 11% bounce that is worth that because they're still seeing slowing sales, slowing growth. And again, they are freely admitting the macro, especially on the home improvement market and its share of the consumer spend. So let's say consumer spend goes down, but then you're also going to potentially see the, the home improvement market get a smaller percentage of that consumer spend. Just a really hard stop for me to justify right now. Yeah. And I feel like investors are like, oh, it wasn't that horrible. It wasn't that great. And you gave them a nice 11% bop. Absolutely sell it. <laughs> well, I think it's emblematic. You know, this one feels to me like it's in the middle of a big tug of war right now as people try to figure out what, you know, and, and it's year-to-date performance suggests that as well. It's almost unchanged, down about 3%. Uh, I like your bold, though, going out against it. Victoria, thanks for your time today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Victoria guys. Green of G Squared Private Wealth. Coming up, is Sin City becoming Sports City? With less than 36 hours before the Formula One Grand Prix, Contessa Brewer has a look at how Vegas is trying to transform itself. Contessa? It is a city transformed, Kelly, because we are seeing the barriers up everywhere. We are seeing the pedestrian bridges used blocked because everything is focused on the Las Vegas Strip and those cars whipping around. I got to see the practice session today. The question is, will it pay off with ticket prices plummeting and room rates falling? Can Sports City still deliver? We're back right after this. Welcome back. The half a billion dollar Las Vegas Formula One Grand Prix goes off at 10 p.m. Pacific time tomorrow. 10 p.m. Is that 1 a.m. Eastern? Anyway, that's hardly the only marquee sporting event that Sin City is hosting these days. Contessa Brewer is there with a look at how Vegas is putting itself on the map in the wild world of sports. Contessa. Well, first of all, you are right. That is 1 a.m. I hope you set your alarm, Kelly. City leaders are counting on F1 to help them cement Las Vegas' sports city because they'd really like to move on from Sin City. And it, it matters to the money this place brings in. For instance, international visitation has been slow to recover post-pandemic. But the F1 fan base, they're international travelers. They're fanatical, influential, affluent, and willing to spend. 
Pacquiao-Mayweather fight in 2015, busiest night on record in Las Vegas. This will be at least 50% more than that, if not higher. And so what that means is airplanes that do not already have parking spots here, they're having to park in Arizona, they're having to park in California, they're having to park in Utah, and even some of those airports are getting full. From an MGM perspective, we have our six planes. We had to bring in four charters and pre-position them in different parts around the country to be able to sustain that operation. Okay, there's a lot of skepticism about that $1.3 billion economic impact expectation because ticket prices are plummeting, room rates are falling. What we've been told by the CEOs is their expectations have already been met by the people who pre-booked and came in and brought their credit. But let's exclude F1 for a minute. In 2018, visitors to Vegas spent on average $824 per trip. That's the year the Vegas Aces launched here. Now they're champions. So are the Golden Knights. The 5-5 five and five Raiders fuel visitation from football fans. And, of course, you've got the MLB owners voting unanimously this week to bring the A's here. Visitor spending is up 40 percent since 2018. And yes, I know you have post-pandemic pent-up demand, you have inflation, but Vegas is betting its future is on sports as the big draw, Kelly. You know, I think it makes sense, uh, obviously, because it's, it's a great mecca and all the rest of it. Uh, it's just, it's a little bittersweet. I, I don't know what, what word to use, the, the Formula One thing. See, what, what is going, I'm not there, Contessa, you tell me. I hear about $30 room rates. I hear about a botched day one practice thing. Now you're telling me the race starts at 1 a.m. Eastern. What, what, what am I missing? There was a hiccup with the manhole cover on the on the raceway itself during the so they had to delay the practice it did tear up a car that's unfortunate but you had um the the chief of mercedes saying look it's not a big deal these things happen i talked to the um, red bull guy team members and they said every time there's a brand new race in a city there's these little things that come up that have to be worked through so that's number one the room rates that's real in fact the room that i booked six months ago was twelve hundred dollars wow. you can now get a room there for two hundred dollars <laughs> that's a real thing but what i've been told is that yeah we we had the f1 crowd come in and book and now we got to fill the rest of those rooms a couple hundred thousand visitors who may have been scared off by thinking it's f1 weekend True. and we're not going to be able to afford everything and so they did you know they didn't book the one other now dynamic is so again the, the husband as you know is a raiders fan so i've been i've been following their 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 move to vegas and watching how the stands are often filled with more visitors from the away team than the home team because to visitors it's a fun trip hey let's go to vegas cheer on you know catch the game yeah. but how is, is that dynamic going to evolve? Do they ultimately need to draw bigger home crowds to make the sporting franchises there a big success? It, look, if you look at what happens with the Golden Knights and the amount of fervor and passion surrounding the hockey team in this town, there are rabid Golden Knights teams, and they have to vie with the tourists who come in for those tickets, which is in the heart of the Las Vegas Strip, which, as you might know, locals don't really make a habit of visiting the Las Vegas Strip. Right. That's number one. Number two is that when you look at MLB bringing a baseball team in here, where you might, you know, what do you have, like 12 football games per season? How many of those 18. at home? Yeah. You don't have to fill the stadium that much. But for a baseball stadium, you are going to have to have the, the hometown crowd in and really True. married to the baseball team in order to keep those seats filled because 
you, you'll still get tourists coming in to see their favorite team play here, but there's a lot more games and, and seats to fill. Yeah, my favorite anecdote from the last couple of years is our producer, Paul, who's a big WNBA fan, went, was out there and thought, I'll catch the game. And he asked a couple different taxi drivers if they'd take him to the WNBA game, and they didn't even know they had a WNBA team. And they, you know, that's what you're up against, I mean, this competition. Says- and that's also the challenge for women's sports, too, right? They've been back-to-back champs. Has that ever been done before? I don't, I don't know if it, that it has. And here you've got this championship team. How can you be local and not know right. you have back-to-back winners? Come on, guys. <laughs> well, usually the fans will follow the, the, the trophies. Uh, so for now, Contessa, thank you very much. It does look like a lot of fun out there, sure. our Contessa Brewer. Still ahead, $1 billion. That's how much Bernstein estimates online retailer Timu has spent on digital ads. A billion dollars. The names the firm says could benefit from that and the ones most at risk. That's next. Welcome back. Shares of Pinduoduo PDD Holdings there is the parent company of the Chinese shopping app Timu. They are beating Amazon on the year. In a sign of the traction they've gained with the American consumer, I hear about them all the time now. Deirdre Bosa is on top of this story and trend and has more details in today's Tech Check. Deirdre? Kelly, this is a story that I I just can't get enough of because it has been so remarkable. You previewed it. Just how rapid Timu's rise has been here in the United States. And it seems like without regulators even blinking twice, given how focused they are on TikTok, Timu has actually grown much faster in terms of downloads. I think Morgan Stanley estimated that one in four American online consumers have shopped at Timu. So Bernstein is out with this new note, and I think the title is perfect. They called it The world is not enough. And that is a nod to that really quick rise. They go through the winners and losers. And pretty much everyone on Wall Street has been focused on Timu for some time if you're in the internet or e-commerce space because they have just been this phenomenon. But they talk about... um, And this is one interesting point about how Timu could become profitable because it's taking this different approach to e-commerce by gamifying the experience and offering very, very deep discounts. But Bernstein talks about how it used that playbook in China and it went from negative 100% margins to positive 60% margins, which is just a huge leap in how it could essentially employ and is employing that playbook here in the United States, which would be certainly a threat to a lot of talk about the dollar stores, but in Amazon as well. And who could benefit, right? The advertising giants. Timu, remember the huge Super Bowl commercial, Shop Like a Billionaire? Bernstein estimates that Timu could be spending a billion dollars plus on platforms that Meta owns, Snapchat, Pinterest. So that's a huge amount of money coming in to their coffers. And last thing I want to say, um, if you are interested in this story, Kelly, and the audience, we did a deep dive for one of our Tech Check weeklies on the whole ecosystem, how it could displace the reigning king, Amazon. That's at cnbc.com slash Tech Check. Excellent. I'm, I will Tech Check it out, Deirdre. Thank you very much. We've got the guy. <laughs> We've got the Bernstein guy. Mark Schmulek joins us now uh, from Bernstein to talk more about the impact of these new Chinese fashion apps. Uh, Mark, it's good to have you with us. And let me just start with the, this eye-catching number. Is it true that Timu has spent a billion dollars on digital advertising? <sighs> Yeah, first, thanks for having me. Uh, we don't know if it's a billion. Uh, what we do know is, you know, three quarters in a row, we've heard Meta call out strength uh, of Chinese-based advertisers. And, you know, when we track the basket, it's not just Timu, it's Xian, it's, you know, Amazon wholesalers, dropshippers on, on Shopify. Uh, you know, there's a clear indication that that cohort has significantly wrapped up 
ramped up their spend, uh, particularly in the U.S., but also across Europe and the rest of the APAC region, uh, to drive adoption and sales. And so they've been spending very aggressively. Uh, and Timu's certainly been leading the charge in terms of total dollars spent. And yeah, we, we think it, it could well be north of a billion dollars this past quarter. Incredible, incredible figures. And we're going to talk about who benefits from that. You're not a retail analyst, but hey, Old Navy did all right this quarter. I mean, you you do concede, and others who cover the spaces could tell us more granularly, but they are taking share from U.S. retailers, no? Well, they, they certainly are. Um, you know, and we've certainly seen some dollars shift from offline to online. You know, we, we always forget just how immature e-commerce actually is in the United States. If if we were around back to 1999 and took a big Internet bull and said in 2023, e-commerce penetration of retail would only be 17 percent, uh, they'd think that the Internet was a complete failure. So we still got a long way to go to bring some of those harder to capture offline dollars online. And certainly off price has been one of those categories uh, that's just been very difficult to move online. And so we're finally starting to see some of those dollars move over. Uh, one more about, so you have some great charts in here where you're showing how, and, and there's one on the screen. This is basically taking Timu's size and putting it in context. So it's already sizable compared with Target, you know, 12, upwards of 12%. It shows up on the radar for Walmart. It shows up for Amazon. And these numbers could grow, especially as these app download figures are really stunning for Timu in particular, also for Sheehan. Don't want to make this a, a Timu-only story. So who's the big beneficiary here? Uh, you know, we, others might want to be a little wary of the retailers until this shakes out, but you see some direct beneficiaries. Which stocks are they? Yeah, I think the digital advertising cohort feels like a clear winner. Uh, you know, I get a lot of questions on, is there a cliff? Because remember, we went through this a couple years ago, mm -hmm. you know, when TikTok was growing off the back of the incumbency platforms. I think there's a real difference here that I don't think there is necessarily the same cliff we saw with a social media name. Uh, Amazon's the largest advertiser on the planet. You know, they spend somewhere north of $40 per Prime subscriber each year in the U.S. Because when you're a transaction-based business, you've got to keep stimulating and driving incremental sales. So, you know, Timu has right now going through this path of getting folks to adopt it, try it out. You know, I've certainly bought more than a few things off of there. Mm -hmm. But then they've got to keep getting me to buy more and more things. So those, you know, digital ad dollars don't just disappear. You know, I think they're here to stay. And just uh, quoting now Bank of America, they think Kohl's gap could be uh, at risk here uh, for more directly as you're, as you're talking about the potential advertising beneficiaries. One interesting point to mention as we look at PDD itself is that you think people were assigning Timu a negative market value just a few months ago. And the quote unquote good news is that's now moved up to zero. How is that possible? You know, I think it's one of those things where when you when you innovate quietly uh, in the side, and I've certainly seen it with some of my own names. You know, when you're when you're kind of investing in, in kind of disruption in the next big thing, there's a lot of dollars that were going into customer adoption, and I think we're now starting to see some data trickle out that you know there actually is traction here. This isn't Wish 2.0. Um, you know, th this may well stick around for quite a while. And we ran some numbers in this note that we published that says, you know, on a contribution margin basis, excluding that acquisition cost, you know, they're already profitable or break even in the United States. And so this is no longer, you know, kind of a cash burn exercise. There, there certainly feels like there's something substantial potentially at the end of this thing. Yeah, it's so interesting. You could be doing uh, about 15 billion this year in gross merchandise volume. They are on the scene. We'll I'll talk a lot more about it going forward. For now, Mark, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it today. Thanks for having me. Mark Schmulik with Bernstein. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. 
Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 